Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. We have a very special guest today, Gary Antonacci. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. So Gary's been a uh, oft-requested guest. Uh, a lot of people send in ideas and thoughts on who to have on the show and keep sending those feedback at themebfavorshow.com. And, and Gary's name has come up many, many times. And Gary and I got to hang out a couple months ago in Vancouver, where we were both giving a speech and had a great time. What a wonderful, beautiful city. And I got to watch Gary speak and he watched, got to watch me speak and turned out Gary's was during my fantasy football draft, which I uh, had forgotten about. So I could have drafted in real time, but Gary's presentation was actually so interesting that I ended up with seven kickers on my team, which, by the way, seems like a flaw on Yahoo's algorithm to to draft a bunch of kickers, but whatever. So Gary, I kind of hold you responsible for losing my fantasy football league last year. That's kind of hard to recover from, but it was worth it because I actually really enjoyed your speech. So I figured we'd start by, I was reading your book again, and it's a great book called Dual Momentum Investing, which came out in 2013, 2014? 2014. Okay, great book. Highly recommended. We'll add uh, links in the show notes. But I was reading the intro from our prior podcast guest and common friend, Professor Wes Gray. And in the intro, he had a great uh, description where... He said where, where you guys were hanging out in Lake Tahoe, and he says, uh, Gary was talking about, he says, yeah, I've done some cool things. I've lived, lived in India for a few years, went on tour as a comedy magician for a while, was an award-winning artist, and I have an MBA from Harvard Business School. So that's pretty eclectic. Gary, why, why don't you just give us a super quick overview of uh, kind of how you got to, to writing Dual Momentum Investing and, and what, 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 what came before that? Well, uh, sure. I started my investment career in 1974 with Merrill Lynch. I had always been interested in exploring underexploited type investments. So at that time, I specialized in gold stocks and stock options. I went on to uh, get my MBA at Harvard and was managing money part time with some option strategies I came up with. I would uh, sit in the back of class and input numbers into my TI calculator and then run to the phone booth during classes and phone in my orders. By the time I graduated, I didn't have to go look for a job. I was managing money from fellow students, their families, even one of my professors. So I came back to California and set up a market maker organization on all the option exchange floors. And uh, after a while, I realized I didn't really have an edge over uh, people on the floor or upstairs traders. So I took a look at commodity futures trading, uh, which was a fragmented industry at that time. There were people doing great things, but nobody had really put it together very well. So I remembered uh, Markowitz's uh, work, which uh, was sitting off in a corner somewhere. People weren't really using it. They were more focused on capital asset pricing models. So I dug out Markowitz and put together uh, some programs to input Uh, different commodity trading approaches because that had an advantage not only of trading different markets but of trading them with uh, different uh, kinds of ideas. So I put together some partnerships and uh, worked with people like Paul Tudor Jones, Richard Dennis, Louis Bacon, John Henry and uh, did very well and was able to semi-retire after about 10 years and that's when I did some of those other things that uh, was mentioned in my book, like uh, being an artist and comedy magician and that kind of stuff. But I always kept an eye on what was going on in the markets because I had my own assets to manage. I didn't know if I'd ever find anything as good as what I had been doing until 
uh, about uh, seven years ago when I came across uh, Momentum and read all the academic papers on it. Now, let me add that, uh, Matt, that you were one of the inspirations I had. Uh, I've been following you since you first came out with your uh, blog and put together your first white paper. So back in 2006, I saw how you had uh, applied trend following uh, to different asset classes, and uh, I thought that made sense to me. Uh, even though I had been brought up in the academic side of things, I was open to trend following because I had witnessed people like Paul Tudor Jones uh, looked at their trading every day. So I didn't need any convincing that there was something there that uh, could be exploited. So I, I dug in and I, I read all the academic papers on momentum. There's, there's a lot of them. And when I finished, I concluded that there's some tremendous opportunity there, but that it wasn't being exploited very well in the marketplace. So I did my own research and wrote a couple of papers that won awards. Uh, 2012, I got first place Wagner Award from National Association of that there's a lot of yeah, vowels in that one. Yeah, National Association of Active Investment Active Managers. Active Investment <laughs> Managers, thank yeah. you. I also started working on some proprietary momentum models that I license now to investment advisors, and they use them to manage customer accounts. But I wanted to uh, give something that the general public could use, so that's when I wrote my book, Dual Momentum Investing, and uh, it came out in 2014 and has been very popular. The, the book has won some awards and has about 300 uh, reviews up on Amazon, most of them five-star reviews. Man, I, I should have thought about it. One of my favorite first episodes was Patrick O'Shaughnessy and I downloaded all of our negative reviews and, and kind of read them out. <laughs> There's some pretty funny ones like, the book didn't show up ever, one star. Uh, if, if I'd known that, I would have printed yours out and we could have had some laughs. Um, the, the, so the, the, one of the cool things about the book is that you know we talk about momentum and the papers and a lot of the academics really only go back to kind of the Jagadish and Titman, uh, which is a very seminal paper, but in the early '90s. And but in reality, momentum and trend following has been something that are close cousins, and we'll talk about definitions in a minute. But it's really something that's been around for a really long time. Not just Charles Dow in 1900, but you even take a quote in your book that says, I'm going to read it here, it says, the first notable person to express momentum pr principles in investment terms was the great classical economist David Ricardo. He was widely considered downside as well as upside momentum when he said in 1838, cut your losses, let your profits run on. Followed his own advice and retired at the age of 42, having amassed a, f a fortune of $65 million in today's dollars. Gary, may maybe touch on a few of the highlights sort of in your mind of kind of the momentum literature uh, that, that or some of the names you've mentioned kind of over the years that kind of got you in the frame of thinking that to where to where you are today. And then we'll, we'll start to go down um, the the theory behind uh, uh, the genesis of dual momentum and what that means. Sure. Well, Jesse Livermore in uh, his book, How to Trade Stocks, said one should buy the strongest stocks. That's obviously momentum. Richard Wyckoff in 1924 said buy the strongest stocks in the strongest industries when the trend is up. That's dual momentum. And uh, Wyckoff was able to retire to an estate in the Hamptons where he was a neighbor of Alfred P. Sloan. Jack Dreyfus would only buy stocks that were making new highs. And uh, when he managed it, his Dreyfus fund greatly outperformed uh, the indices. Uh, Richard Driehaus is another person who used momentum. He retired as a philanthropist, uh, was managing $10 million using momentum. And I had read Nick Darvis back in the 1970s, who wrote a book, How I Made $2 Million in Stocks. And it was basically a rotational momentum type approach. Was, was, wasn't Darvis a, a dancer? In my yeah, he was, yeah, he was okay. a dancer. And, and he would travel around and send cables to his brokers. Uh, telling him what to buy and sell based on uh, stocks that were showing uh, high momentum. And when the momentum started to wane, he would know when to get out. Now, that's great, you know, if you have a good sense of the markets, like all these people did. But for most of us, we don't. So we needed something that's rules-based and systematic. And that's where uh, the research came in. And the actual first research on momentum was done in 1937 by Cowles and Jones. 
and they looked at every New York Stock Exchange stock from 1920 through 1935, and they, they had to tabulate that by hand. And when they had finished, they concluded that stocks that had been strong over the preceding year continued to be strong going forward. That's really the basis of modern-day momentum as it's practiced today. And so let's uh, let's start with some definitions maybe before uh, we start to go into the theory behind the book. And so much like other areas of finance, very jargony, and you know people talk about momentum and trend following and all that sort of stuff, and you simplify it into really two types of momentum. It's relative and absolute. So maybe would that be a good starting point on kind of defining those and then starting to talk about uh, the steps in your theory and kind of how to, how to put it all together? Sure. Well, relative strength, momentum or relative strength is the one that has uh, most commonly been written about and that most people are, are uh, familiar with, and that's where you're comparing one asset to others. Relative strength is nothing new. Uh, it's been used effectively for a long time. And the research on it goes back about 200 years. Uh, Grazerman, his partner, uh, drawing a blank right now, but they, uh, oh, Samanoff, they did a paper uh, called 215 Years of Global Multi-Asset Momentum, in which they looked at relative strength applied to geographically diversified stock indices, currencies, bonds, commodities, global industry sectors and U.S. stocks, and then they looked across all of them, and they looked at uh, what they all did together, and they found that it held up consistently from the year 1800 all the way until now. So momentum has shown robustness, consistency, persistence, uh, all the things you want to see when when you uh, look at a factor. So 200 years is a pretty decent out-of-sample performance. And so, okay, so just definitional, so relative momentum, also relative strength, cross-sectional, those all mean the same thing. And then on the opposite side, just to clear up the words before we get started, you also talk about absolute momentum. Uh, Maybe talk about what the the definition of that is. Absolute momentum, you're comparing performance uh, to yourself over time. So uh, sometimes it's called time series momentum. And uh, best way is to give an example. Let's say the S&P 500 has been up over the past year. Well, then you say it has positive absolute momentum, and it should continue to go up because momentum means persistence in performance. Whereas if the S&P 500 has been down over the preceding year, you say the absolute momentum is negative and you'd want to stand aside. Now, what's interesting about Gexi and Samanov, and I, I actually showed this in my first paper written in 2011 as well, is that momentum, while it perf- performs well universally, it actually does best historically when applied to ge- geographically diversified uh, stock indices. And so that's how I like to use it. For relative momentum, what I'll do is I'll compare the performance of the S&P 500 to the rest of the world. Uh, and I'll say whichever has been stronger over the preceding 12 months, that's the one I want to go with. And I'll use 12 months as my look back because Cowles and Jones showed that worked in 1937. We don't have to engage in any kind of data mining. We just use that. And uh, it's held up well ever since then. And uh, it's quite remarkable what happens when you do that. It's a, a very simple approach. All you're doing is saying whichever has been stronger over the past year, that's what you'll invest in. And then you go through and you reevaluate month by month and you see if that continues to be the case. And the increase in return you get from that simple approach over the S&P 500 since 1971 is 270 basis points a year. Now, I use 1971 as a starting point because that's when stock indices were available that included the whole world. So uh, MSCI indices uh, go back to 1970. You don't have any problems that you might have associated with individual stocks in terms of uh, scalability. You can invest as much as you want in these broad-based indices, and transaction costs are not a problem either because 
there's fewer than uh, one switch a year with that strategy. Now, to earn 270 basis points a year from something that simple is, is pretty remarkable, I, I think. I don't know any money managers since 1971 who beat the S&P 500 by 270 basis points a year on average, except maybe Warren Buffett, and I, I don't think he thinks he can do that anymore. So, so the basics are right. So we got the first step, which is you look at the S&P versus foreign stocks. Whichever one is has the best performance over the last year, you invest in that one. And 100% of assets, and that's pretty simple. And that leads to, like you mentioned, um, a couple hundred basis point outperformance. And it's actually even higher outperformance, by the way, if you compare it to the foreign stocks, because over that period, they didn't have as high returns as the S&P. And so um, this sort of relative strength or relative momentum that people always talk about is, you know, in many ways, a outperformance system. So you're looking to outperform. But one of the challenges of that, of course, is that equities being equities, you know, they they have a higher volatility and, and longer drawdown. So you also talk a little bit about the concept of adding in absolute momentum. And so maybe kind of talk about the the, the next extension there as part of the, the dual momentum uh, approach. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's the other part of the dual momentum. And that's uh, where I think uh, I have something interesting uh, to offer is that when you use absolute momentum, you don't get as high a return as applying just relative uh, momentum. And so if you're doing a switching strategy where you're in the S&P 500, if it's been positive uh, with respect to treasury bills over the past 12 months, and when it's not, you switch into something uh, safe like aggregate bonds, then you make an extra 210 basis points a year on average over the S&P 500. Still quite respectable. Not as high as 270 basis points, but 210 basis points is still pretty good. And what you do along the way is you mitigate much of the drawdown that happens during bear markets. So a lot of people would prefer to use something like trend following or absolute momentum. Now, absolute momentum... Uh, has been validated by Gaksky and Samanov also back the 210 years. And uh, it's been validated even further by uh, Grazerman and Kaminsky, who did a study all the way back to the 1200s, believe it or not, uh, using this absolute momentum approach with the 12-month look back. Now, they weren't able to invest in fixed income when they were out of the risky asset because there were no bonds available during much of that time. So they just held in cash. And what they found was that there was more than a doubling in the rate of return, a doubling in the Sharpe ratio, and a reduction in drawdowns of over 30% using this trend-following approach compared to buy and hold. Uh, they applied it to stocks going back to the 1600s and to other assets going all the way back to the 1200s. Wow. Why, why, why was it such a short back test? You should at least be able to take that to, to, to zero. Okay, so um, the, the combination of the two you call, I believe, global equities momentum. Do you say GEM? Is that, is that a reasonable acronym? Yeah, I like that, that term, okay. GEM. But it, it's, uh, it's dual momentum. And you get a synergy that happens when you do that. Uh, the compound annual growth rate from dual momentum, the combination of these two approaches uh, applied to the indices is 16.2% uh, a year from 1971. So that's a considerable increase over uh, the 10.5% a year from the S&P 500. What's most impressive, though, is the reduction in volatility and drawdown. Your maximum monthly uh, month-end drawdown from the S&P has been 51% during that time. From dual momentum, it's under 20%. That's awesome. And so you kind of combine the, the benefits of trend following or this absolute momentum, which is kind of risk reduction or getting out when when you're having a long bear market, as well as the benefits of the relative momentum, which is the outperformance and is kind of the best of both worlds. And so the cool part about Gary's approach, and you can, by the way, go to his website 
and it has not only the historical performance by month all the way to the 70s, but also out of sample performance since the book has been published, which he updates every month. And then also the allocation. And the cool thing, Gary, I mean, and, and this seems obvious to me in retrospect, but I mean, looking back to the financial crisis and I mean, you've basically been in U.S. stocks almost since, I guess, 2009 with very, very few trades, you know, a real quick in and out into bonds or into foreign. Um, and it's almost that whole period, right? That's correct. And, you know, one, that's the best place to be. U.S. stocks have been the number one performing stock market in the world. So uh, clearly it did a good job of that. And it's interesting. And it hasn't pulled the trigger yet, to my knowledge. But I imagine in the next few months, it, it's going to be interesting to see if that uh, finally starts to flip over to foreign. Because kind of since last summer, I believe, when, when interest rates bottom, we've seen foreign really start to pick up the slack and, and, uh, and start to outperform. So it'll be interesting to see when, when that flip happens. If it does, you know, who knows? U.S. That's stocks right. keep keep running <laughs> four um, and a half in, four and a half in gaining on us so and, and um, what, what's your what's the website where people can track the uh the allocation and performance they can go to uh optimal momentum.com okay perfect all right so you know the, the cool part is everyone listening could just full stop you've just been given a very simple implemental model that works with like one or two trades per year it's the ultimate kind of what we call coffee can or lazy portfolio, but just for uh, our own uh, edification and, and to go down some more interesting rabbit holes, we're going to get a little more uh, deep and granular because Gary on his blog and articles loves to get deep on some topics. So one is um, as a, as a expansion of your simple idea, and and the beauty one is that it's simple, so you don't need to mess with it. But but I'm an engineer, so I love to tinker. Um, what have you thought about more granularity? So, you know, a lot of people out there would say, hey, you know, what, what about adding uh, instead of just foreign markets, why not emerging or why not adding, uh, you know, foreign bonds or real estate or commodities? Have you thought about that at all? What's what's the um, what's kind of your thinking there? Yes, I've done more than just think about it. Well, first of all, emerging markets are included in the uh the foreign uh, index that I use, I try to be all inclusive, so there's no selection bias. There's U.S. and there's the whole rest of the world, uh, so they represent 10 to 15 percent of uh, the world, and they they get included. But yes, you can induce a little more granularity, uh, not a lot. I've tried adding all the MSCI type indices that I can find data for you know, having to do with factors and everything else under the sun. And almost nothing really improves upon it. I do have some proprietary models, as I mentioned, that I license. And they do expand uh, the granularity a little bit, but the biggest benefit comes from uh, doing some work on the timing side of things, just making the uh, absolute momentum uh, part of it a little more robust. Uh, So... I get emails all the time from people saying, well, have you looked at this, that, and the other thing? And chances are I have, but I usually go back to them and I say, well, uh, if you like that idea, fine, but you have to see if we pass, if it passes certain tests. Are the results robust? Are they consistent? Are they persistent? Do they make sense? Do you have plenty of data to ascertain all of those things? And usually that's the last I hear from them. So we're going to pepper um, the rest of the conversation. I'm going to interject because we had I asked Twitter and I said, hey, Twitter, you have any good questions for Gary as we go along? And some are a little bit relevant to what we're talking about at the same time. And and some we'll just ask at the end. But there was a good question um, that, that Wes actually chimed in earlier. And he said, you know, what sort of evidence would be required to convince you that this dual momentum model, which has worked historically and then after publication, won't work in the future and this is something we struggle a lot with and there's various answers but what, what, what's your perspective on uh what, what kind of evidence would you need to to say okay maybe maybe this time is different or maybe this model is is kaput that's a very good question and because the evidence is so strong on both types of momentum i i think the evidence against it would need to be strong too with relative momentum we have evidence 
across multiple kinds of markets going all the way back 200 plus years. On absolute momentum, we have evidence going back even further, you know, as I mentioned. So we would need more than just a little bit of underperformance, um, and there's always going to be underperformance. So I, if we were to see a full market cycle of a severe bear market and a, a, a healthy bull market and dual momentum underperformed, then I think I might, you know, take some notice. But what I'd really want to see and try to understand is, would be, is there some reason for it not to work going forward? Uh, one possible reason might be that everybody becomes a trend follower. I very much doubt that's going to happen. You know, actually, the biases are all going the other way. Uh, there's plenty of behavioral biases that keep people away from momentum, particularly dual momentum. Uh, some people think it's too simple or uh, the disposition effect, you know, makes people inclined to sell things when they start to go up instead of buy them, which is what momentum tells you you should do. There's familiarity bias, anchoring, uh, slow diffusion of this information, a preference that people have for stocks over indices. Uh, there's all these things working against it in terms of uh, being uh, overly popular. But those are the kinds of things I would look for. There's another question from uh, Economic, which is Jake, and he says, what are your thoughts on doing something alpha-oriented versus uh, just dropping it into cash and bonds. Um, so when when you're having the downtrend in stocks, is there have you ever played around with any ideas there? Is there any sort of um, thoughts, or is there not much uh, not much to 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 go down that path? Well, I'm not sure what he means by alpha oriented. There's there's not a lot of alpha out there. <laughs> I, th I think I think he just means what like okay if you're getting out of stocks, is there any other sort of alternatives to just going in T-bills or bonds or this aggregate they use. So whether it's shorting, yeah. whether it's some other system, I think people um, love to think about just, I, I want to do something else other than just sit in, sit in bonds for the people that need a little more rocket fuel. Is there, is there any yeah. other ideas? Yes, there, there are. Uh, shorting doesn't work. I looked at that, but the problem is you, you've got an upward bias to stocks. And by the time you get out, and then get back in, you know, there, there's no real advantage to going in on the short side because what happens is when the stock market starts to weaken and pe people see that, uh, there's a flow of money away from stocks into bonds. And the stock market is a lead indicator, so when the Fed sees that, uh, they might think a recession is coming and they have an incentive to try to have interest rates low. That's another possibility positive uh, thing for, for bonds. So I prefer to be in bonds. Now, you don't just have to be in ag bonds. I chose ag bonds because they're very stable and you don't have to worry much about duration risk. But I also have a dual momentum fixed income model that uh, can go into different areas of the fixed income market. That's something that I, I use in my proprietary uh, modeling. We're all combined for more conservative type people, I can combine the dual momentum fixed income along with the enhanced uh, global uh, equities momentum. And that makes sense. I mean, we've looked at it with a lot of the trend following stuff in the past and sitting in T-bills, of course, is the lowest fall uh, sort of um, cash substitute and moving out to like a 10-year or an ag certainly will give you another 100 basis points-ish or, or higher yield, but also introduces a little more volatility. And the biggest point you touched on is the shorting. And, and we talked about this where we said, look, Shorting really doesn't increase returns or risk numbers. It actually amps up the volatility largely because when markets are downtrending, they're higher volatility than when they're uptrending. Um, the only time that we usually recommended a traditional shorting is if someone's using it as a hedge to a portfolio they have elsewhere. So meaning they're like, hey, I have my 401k. I can't move it. It's long only. In that case, shorting may make a little sense because it may help to, uh, to hedge that out. But in general, shorting... Uh, if you were to do it with your entire portfolio, it certainly doesn't add to the to the risk-adjusted returns, really. One of the um, posts you uh, have written recently in January, which is also curious because, you know, commodities, for many people, is it, there's lots of different types of commodities, you know, whether it's just the broad-based indices, which are mostly energy, or whether it's gold, or whether, uh, you know, other natural resource stocks. There's There's 
commodity space is, is a bit different for most. And so you wrote a post called, Are Commodities Still a Good Portfolio Diversifier? I wonder if you'd uh, walk us down uh, the, the theory and thoughts in the, that article. Well, the, the problem there, and this problem applies in other areas too, is that people read some research and they, they think that that's the state of uh, the world forever. And uh, that's not necessarily the case. Markets and their participants change over time. And they can change in response to the research, too. And I think that's what's happened in the area of uh, passive commodities. There was a paper that came out uh, saying that commodities are a good diversifier to a stock bond portfolio. And uh, they gave the suggestion that everybody put some money into uh, passive commodity futures. Some of the, uh, the brokers and the, and the fund, uh, funds out there went out and started marketing it so that uh, enormous number of pension funds st- started dumping money into commodities. Now, that created a problem in the marketplace because of the equilibrium that goes on here. When I was involved with futures back in the 1980s, you know, the market was dominated by hedgers, people who needed to lay off the risk that they had, uh, and they were willing to give up a premium to do that uh, so that they wouldn't go out of business. But as more and more speculators entered the market and as more and more uh, people enter on the other side of things, you know, that premium that they have to offer to people is will decrease as you get more participants on the other side. And I think that's what's happened in the commodity futures area. And if you go in and you look more deeply at what's been going on in those markets, you can see that there has been a shift over time. And I was calling people's attention to that. So if you go onto my blog, which is uh, uh, dualmomentum.com, uh, you can find the references that I give. And I'll, I even go into some of the papers that purport to su- still support uh, allocations to commodities. And I, I even show how, if you look more closely at some of the things that are in those papers, you can see that you can make a case uh, for the other side. Uh, you also have complications like front running that's been going on. And That can happen in the equity side, too. But uh, there was a paper done that shows it's very uh, serious in in terms of the uh, Goldman Sachs Commodity Index and that there's a considerable amount of return that gets taken away from speculators because there are parties out there who know what the rollover dates are, and they just step in ahead of time and then take their profits afterwards. You, you touched on a lot there, and there's a couple of good points. And one, I think the hardest part for a lot of people is 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 understanding or knowing what you own. And so for commodities, most of these ETFs, people think, hey, I'm buying uh, you know, this commodity index and I'm getting exposure to commodity spot prices, when in reality you're not. You're getting exposure to futures. And I think particularly with the 1.0 version of futures products, uh, they were very suboptimal, and a lot of them now are starting to incorporate, say, roll yield or other sort of factors like momentum or perhaps value, which is a little wonky in commodities, but but, but are getting better. But I think it's very great example of knowing what you own, and then um, on top of that, um, you know, I think the the comment on what we call the dirty little secret of indexing, which is front running. And it's not a huge deal in, say, the S&P 500, but it is certainly a major, major problem in smaller equity markets like microcaps as well as commodities. And I, I think in some markets, I think you mentioned the Goldman Sachs index, it's a, it's a multiple hundred basis point drag on returns. And so, so I always say my, my ideal approach is an active approach that's just subjective and rules-based. Or sorry, objective and rules-based, but you don't actually publish the, publish the index rules because there's a lot of wolves on a, out there on Wall Street that will front-run you till, till the heart's content. So indices are a good first step, but you just shouldn't tell anybody what you're doing. So it's interesting because there's some models out there that whether they've been based on your work or other people's, um, I know Ned Davis publishes one called the three-way model, which instead of your... Uh, equity, foreign equity and bonds, they introduce gold 
uh, as a third asset class, and you know, same sort of thing. Uh, and the in the rotation has pretty good returns. Um, do you uh, have you ever thought about moving away from market cap weighting in these indices? So a lot of people say, well, not just momentum on the uh, macro top down level, but what about using say value or momentum factors? instead of the market cap indices what's uh what's the thoughts there i've looked at those and uh, they really don't add anything and uh, value in particular is uh, not very responsive to momentum i think it's because they have a a a different kind of thing they're trying to accomplish momentum is uh based on autocorrelation and trend persistence and uh Value is more mean reverting, uh, so it's kind of like mixing oil and water together. Uh, they don't res- value doesn't respond uh, so well to momentum. Uh, equal weight is, I mean, you can break that down into you know what does it really mean, and it, it's really just a, a going to a lower, uh, smaller type capitalization, and it's not bad, but uh, I haven't found any any real advantage uh, to incorporating it. Interesting. And one of the benefits of market cap investing will always be uh, size. So for the people listening here that have uh, multiple billions and, and want to implement this, <laughs> this shouldn't be a problem. And as you get away from market cap investing, certainly the smaller and tinier granularity you get, the little harder it is to move around big pieces of money. Um, but you have talked about granularity uh, within the U.S. as far as sector rotation. Maybe uh, give us some insight and talk about that a bit. When I wrote my book, uh, I had taken a look at sector rotation, and I had data like everybody else going back to uh, around 1990 on the sectors, and I I applied a dual momentum approach to it, and it, it looked okay. I mean, it was uh, comparable to my other models, so I put it in toward the back of my book as just an example of uh, another way that you might want to use dual momentum. What happened then was I started getting tons of emails from people saying, tell me more. I'm attracted to sectors because I think people naturally prefer things that have more moving parts. They prefer the complicated over the simple, which is, uh, I don't think, the way that biases should be. I think the other way makes more sense. But I kept telling people, well, you can if you want, but I wouldn't do it. And, uh, And then... I was able to get data going back to the early 1970s after a while, and I went and I reran the sector uh, type models, and I found, lo and behold, that the volatility shot way up and the returns dropped way down. And so now if you compared it, uh, it just didn't make any sense. Uh, Although there were still people uh, attracted to it, so I said, okay, well, from a diversification point of view, maybe you you could put 20% or so into sector rotation. And uh, because sometimes you can include things that are suboptimal by themselves, just because in a portfolio context, it can make some sense from because of their diversification value. But I found as I did more work with momentum and I developed my proprietary models that uh, sector rotation just fell out of the possible portfolio framework entirely. Interesting. And by the way, I'll give you some homework for the weekend. You can, uh, the French Fama database has sector and industry data for free going back to the twenties. Now I, um, I'm not sure how, uh, uh, how much you want to go play around with it, but, or if you have, but that if you really, really want to go far back, there's, (laughs) there's, there's a lot in there. Um, and by the way, how many sectors were you looking at when you said the the sector rotation? Were you taking just one out of ten, or was it three or five out of ten? I took the ten sectors, and then I uh, I worked with different uh, algorithms to try to see what seemed to make sense. It, it generally ended up with being three or four sectors, but I also had a, a way of, uh, and this is done to uh, in other areas too, where. You, you have different criteria for getting in than getting out so that there's not so much turnover. You might uh, go with something when it's in the top one or two and then hold it until it drops below the, the four or five ranking. So I, I experimented with all of that. 
And um, still, uh, and I, I use straight straight numbers as well. Uh, but still, it, there was nothing I could do that uh, convinced me that it was worth continuing with sectors. All right. Well, let's. Uh, I know you tinker and, and read a lot of research and think about a lot of things. What, what's what's on the plate for 2017? What do you what do you what unanswered questions? What areas of research are you thinking about these days? What uh what's on the what's on the horizon that that's on Gary's mind? Well, it's uh, funny you should ask because I was thinking about the other day. I really can't think of anything more. I've uh, exhausted pretty much everything that I could come up with. And what I try to do actually is um, follow along with Voltaire said. He said, first you start with a basic idea, then you develop it and expand on it. And then if you're really good, you end up simplifying things and just coming back to basics to where you capture the essence of something. So I, I, I think I've got the essence here of what I'm trying to do. And I'm happy with the, the models that I have now. That's great. That's a that's a that's a wonderful answer. Um, we uh, I, I wish I was in that situation right now. I I, I end up uh, downloading a new paper, etc. I, I just need to start reading Wes's Wes's summaries at this point. I need to outsource all of my academic uh, paper reading to to what Wes is doing. Let's take a hard right turn. And um, there's something I didn't know about you, but um, but back in the day, uh, I learned that you used to think about approach to sports and sports betting back in the day a couple decades ago tell us a little bit about that what was that like what sort of ideas were you kicking around and and working with then i had a family member who was uh, into betting on football games and he knew i was into quantitative investing so he said uh why don't you take a look at uh, home underdogs in the nfl i think there's something there and at first i just but then I thought, well, okay, I'll take a look. So I got a hold of some data and I went through and I, after looking at it, I saw, well, yeah, there was something there. Uh, and so I got intrigued by it and I started looking at other ways of approaching it. And um, I hired some uh, Cal Berkeley students to assist me because you had to do all this by hand then. There, there were no uh, computer databases. So we just started working away and, and looking at things, and pretty soon uh, we came up with a, a number of things like that. And uh, so I, I would send one of them on the bus each weekend up to Reno to place bets on the, on the football games, and uh, we did pretty well. So I figured, well, let's expand on that. And we started looking at other sports, uh, like basketball and baseball and uh, colleges as well, and even hockey. And we built up a Monte Carlo simulator for baseball games, which did well early in the season because players had shifted around to different teams and nobody could quite figure out how that all fit together, but we had it. and it was intriguing. You know, this was before behavioral economics, behavioral finances back in the 1980s. And a lot of those same same uh, principles I could see applying. And I actually learned some valuable lessons from it, uh, what, which I have been able to apply uh, to my investing now. Uh, so what happened was that uh, I had to start dealing with bookmakers because we were doing things on a daily basis. And some of them, after a while, wouldn't do business with me any, anymore. And others became real friendly with me. They wanted me to bet early with them uh, so they could use that information. Um, but it just, uh, after a while, it, it just took over my life too much. I had a large satellite dish put on my house and I was ignoring my family and and so forth so I just walked away from it but I did learn some valuable lessons from it Uh, one was uh, you have to have an edge you have to have a positive expectation before doing anything and I think the way this applies to investing is I see a lot of people who don't have an edge who think they might who are doing active type investing or even some factor based investing which I go into in my last blog post. Uh, they'd be better off 
just going into uh, buy and hold uh, passive type index investing. Uh, the other thing is you need to keep things simple. Uh, when I was started doing this, I thought, well, gee, this is great. Maybe I can hit 70% winners or high 60s or whatever. And I could, by manipulating the data, I could find models that fit the data and would give that to me, but it would never hold up real time. So I realized after a while, you know, hitting in the, in the high 50s is about what should be expected and keep things as simple as possible. Uh, Lem Banker made a tremendous living just hitting about 57% of his, uh, of his game. So you really need to keep things uh, from being overfit and over-optimized. And then I, I learned you have to have positive uh, but realistic expectations uh, so that, like I say, I, I couldn't expect to be hitting 70% winners. And people out there in the markets, they shouldn't expect too much either. Uh, one of the biggest problems I've seen in investing is people have too high an expectation and they lose interest when you underperform for a little while. Now, the only thing I guarantee people is that using my approach or any other approach, there will be periods of underperformance. And a lot of people just move on to the next thing when that happens. So you have to be even-minded and uh, persistent and, uh, you know, keep the, the big picture in mind. Uh, some people are, or quote Warren Buffett, who's, who once said, uh, there are two rules to investing. One is to um, not lose money, and the second is to uh, remember rule number one. Well, that's bull hockey. I mean, Warren Buffett hasn't followed that himself. His Berkshire Hathaway has had 50% drawdowns twice in the past 20 years. He's persisted because he knows he has an edge, a positive expectation, and he's been able to have the confidence and the persistence to continue. So I think that's another lesson that I learned from sports, because if you have 57% or 58% winners, you're going to have a lot of losers along the way. And you just have to learn to accept that. Yeah, I think Buffett's biggest piece of alpha, like you mentioned, is simply sticking to his system. And his system's not that complicated for the most part, buying high-quality value stocks. Uh, but it's not deviating when he goes through a period of one, five, ten years underperformance to the market, but also... Uh, to um like you mentioned where you have these big drawdowns so uh we're going to do about one or two more questions and start to wind down because we've we've had you for about an hour and uh don't want to take too long what sort of one piece of advice would you give there's a lot of people on this podcast that are probably saying okay uh i'm on board i want a simple approach dual momentum makes sense to me uh what's your one piece of advice for kind of implementation so how they want to go about it actually putting this to work uh whether it's through how do you track it or how do you stick to it It, what's what's your one kind of overarching theme or uh, piece of advice well if they want to do it themselves uh get my book uh, there's instructions in there uh you you don't need to do any fancy calculations you can use a chart based approach it takes about two minutes a month uh, to check and you're only trading uh, with the dual momentum approach I mentioned here there's an average of 1.3 trades per year so uh, most of the time you're doing nothing and so can they find the signals on your website or do you recommend a particular charting site is like stock charts or white charts is there any any uh, where do you recommend that they go follow this stock charts is good because uh, the uh, they include uh, dividends, it's, it's total returns. Uh, a lot of charting packages don't. It's only price information. Uh, that's, a, that's a great piece of information. <laughs> I think Big Charts uh, was one that doesn't include, include dividends, and you'd see these huge moves down for, for investments at year end or when mutual funds would distribute cash. And there's a lot of backtesters out there, by the way, uh, listeners, that wouldn't include stuff like delisted stocks or wouldn't include uh, distributions, whether it's through dividends and all this other stuff. So, so buyer beware on that. All right. Last question. You may have to think about this one for a second. Uh, over your career in history and involved in the markets, what is the most memorable trade? And this can be a winner. It can be a loser. It can be whatever it may be. Is there one that sticks out uh, as the most memorable trade you've had? 
Well, uh, when I was uh, managing money in options, uh, I thought I had something good going on. Uh, I was capturing premium, and uh, you know, I, I I thought I had an edge because uh, there were no uh, data feeds out there. I kind of built my own. I uh, ordered a quote machine and I had an electrical engineer tear it apart and dump the data into a microprocessor and then into our mini computer. So I, I would have my own, and I'd have my own uh, sophisticated pricing models, uh, not the normal Black Shoal stuff. So I thought I had some, a little bit of an edge. And, uh, and it, you know, I'd been doing well. I, I was able to uh, not go out and find a job and uh, managing money and attracting money. And I made the same mistake, I guess, long-term capital management made. I didn't consider uh, omitted factors, such as uh, the fact that some options could be overpriced for a reason, a, a very good reason that wasn't well known. So one week we had uh, short positions in two copper companies that were taken over at the same time, which is, uh, you know, talk about tail events. That's about as far out on the tail as you're going to get. And that effectively taught me that I should not be doing this anymore. <laughs> so, by the way, mine was this, mine's basically the same was involving options, uh, a strangle back in the day. I've told that story before, so I'm not going to repeat it here. Um, Gary, it's been awesome. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, we've mentioned it a few times, but where can people track you, follow your writing, tweeting, anything else if they want more information? My website is optimalmomentum.com and my blog is uh, dualmomentum.com. And you're on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? Twitter is my name. Good. Well, there's a few questions that we didn't get to today, so feel free to answer those. And people, y'all can follow Gary on Twitter and see what he has to say about FX and all sorts of other uh, questions we didn't have time for today. Listeners, thanks for taking the time to listen today. We always welcome feedback and questions for the mailbag at feedback at feedback at the com. As a reminder, you can always find the show notes. Gary mentioned lots of papers and books and references here. We'll try to uh, link to as many of them as we can for further research. Um, in the episodes at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you're enjoying the podcasts or hating them, please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.